Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 21st, 2006. I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Welcome to the podcast. In today's podcast, we have with us Dr. Stanley Nazarway, MD, FCCM, and he will be speaking to us uh, about an article published in the December issue of Critical Care Medicine. The title is Heparin-Induced Thrombocytopenia in the Critical Care Setting, Diagnosis and Management. The reference is Critical Care Medicine, Volume 34, Number 12, pages 2898 to 2911, and this is a continuing medical education article. Dr. Nazaroy is a professor of surgery, medicine, and anesthesia at Tufts University and chief of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Tufts New England Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. This is his second visit to the podcast, and we're grateful that he could join us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As you and I were discussing before, this is uh, something that's much talked about in the ICU, but probably not as much as it should be. Uh, And again, the overall structure for today's podcast, really, uh, this is a very uh, in-depth article, so I thought we're really just going to have an opportunity to hit on some of the high points that our readers uh, might focus in on, again, starting out with a little of the epidemiology and pathophysiology of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, then moving on to try and recognize the disease, what are some tips that might be provided for uh, the practicing critical care provider, and then finally, and again, with great interest, some focus on therapy for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Why don't I sort of let you take it from there, putting this together? Well, thank you very much, Richard. Uh, Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia has has been an interest of mine and and that of uh, my colleagues who co-published this paper, uh, which include Lena Napolitano, uh, Theodore Workington, Amjad al-Muhammad, and then myself. And uh, we had gathered for a conference a couple of years ago on thrombocytopenia in the critically ill. And, and from that, uh, that uh, conference, it sprung this uh, paper in review. You know, thrombocytopenia in the intensive care units is uh, remarkably common. Uh, it strikes in about 35 to 40% of surgical ICU patients and upwards of about 25 to 30% of medical intensive care unit patients. Thrombocytopenia is a marker for the severity of illness, and actually the greater the magnitude of the decline in platelet count, the greater its predictability in death of the critically ill patient. Uh, there are many things, as I think practitioners know, that will cause thrombocytopenia uh, in the intensive care unit, including sepsis, uh, drug-related thrombocytopenia, uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation, and a number of other disorders. But sort of under the radar screen and pivotally important, the single most important cause altogether is probably heparin. There are over a trillion units of heparin that are administered to patients nationally, just in the United States alone. And 
that actually results in about 12 million patients who are exposed to heparin annually. Uh, and for sure, I think we all know that heparin is one of the most commonly administered parenteral therapies in the hospital setting. Furthermore, not all the heparin exposure ever really gets documented in the chart. For example, most pulmonary artery catheters are coated with heparin, and that's not really something that appears in a chart. There may be flush solutions uh, for uh, dialysis catheters and such, uh, which aren't necessarily well documented. So heparin exposure can be both overt and, and actually covert. And I think people don't appreciate that even the smallest amount of heparin exposure can result in heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. I just wanted to, to jump in because you mentioned, and I thought the table one in your article was very, very nice, and I'm actually just going to read that real quick for the listeners. So potential etiologies of thrombocytopenia, as you started to mention, sepsis, uh, perioperative and post-resuscitation, very common, and then uh, drug-induced thrombocytopenia, including HIT, as you mentioned, liver disease, platelet consumption or destruction, DIC, massive transfusion, primary bone marrow, uh, disorder or dysfunction, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, lupus anticoagulant, again, very important, and then the immune thrombocytopenias, ITP, TTP, and intravascular devices such, an intra such as intraortic balloon pump and ECMO. Just thought no, that I appreciate was that, and, and I'm glad you highlighted it. And yet, one thing I pointed out was that although sepsis might be, for example, a more common cause of thrombocytopenia, the reason that we think that heparin-induced thrombocytopenia deserves special attention is because although the incidence of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia with heparin exposure may be only 1% to 2 to maybe 3%, particularly in surgical patients, about 30% of these patients will go on to sustain an amputation or death from the syndrome, never mind an arterial or venous thrombosis. So I think recognition of, of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is important because although the incidence is low, the adverse effects can be uh, profound. Uh, so, for example, uh, in one Italian study that was published three years ago looking at about 600 medical patients receiving subcutaneous heparin for DVT prophylaxis, about five of 598 patients, or about eight-tenths of one percent, developed heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Uh, but three of these patients had a deep venous thrombosis, and two of the three died. So, although the incidence is not really high, the, the consequences can be quite devastating. And so, given all the heparin exposure that our patients often have, we need to, to raise heparin-induced thrombocytopenia as a syndrome that is on the radar screen and something that we're thinking about on a regular basis. Plus, it's a paradox. Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT, you know, it's interesting. You're using heparin, and yet it's a thrombotic disorder. So it's a clotting disorder, not a bleeding disorder in the setting of heparin. Furthermore, because the magnitude of the platelet drop can be upwards of 50 to 80% from baseline, platelet counts might get as low as even 10 or 20,000, and the practitioner might be tempted to give platelets as a transfusion. But actually, that's a contraindication. Platelet transfusions actually increase the thrombotic risk. And, and that would put both the patient at increased harm and also the practitioner at increased litigation risk. So giving platelets is the wrong thing to do, even though that would be the natural instinctive response. So um, the, the two things I thought we could do next that would be interesting is, uh, in terms of epidemiology, I'm going to mention this table two that you have, which discusses the individuals at risk 
for heparin-induced heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and has them at high risk, intermediate risk, and low risk. And I'm going to sort of list them and see if you'd like to make some uh, overview comments afterwards. So they mentioned that the highest risk here are postoperative or trauma patients, especially cardiac, vascular, or orthopedic patients, that the intermediate risk are postoperative reading, uh, receiving low molecular weight or unfractionated heparin flushes, or medical patients treated with therapeutic or prophylactic unfractionated heparin, and that the lowest risk are medical or obstetrical patients treated with uh, low molecular weight heparin. So maybe if you'd like to spend a few minutes talking about that interesting table. Well, I think that, that the risk part is important because it's the unfractionated form of heparin that poses the greater risk. Uh, resulting in the binding of platelet factor 4 and the generation of heparin-dependent antibodies. The low molecular weight heparins are, are a smaller version of the unfractionated heparin form, and they also can cause HIT, but at a much lower incidence. And so when you think about the populations at risk, the cardiology patient and the cardiac surgical patient actually uh, have a fairly high rate of unfractionated heparin exposure. And in addition to that, when using the ELISA as an assay for determining the presence of heparin-dependent antibodies, uh, they tend uh, to be the most ELISA-positive uh, group of patients. With open-heart surgery patients, uh, depending on which study you read, uh, having a 20 to 50% seroconversion positivity rate. Orthopedic patients as high as 10 to 15 percent, and and then for all general critically ill patients, uh, somewhere in the in the one to five percent range. Although it can be as low as one percent, depending upon whether your unit uses low molecular weight heparin or whether your unit uses unfractionated heparin. So, for example, in Europe, low molecular weight heparin is the least expensive option, as I understand it, and so many of the intensive care units focus on low molecular weight heparin, which has a lower incidence of HIT. On the other hand, in Canada, unfractionated heparin is the least expensive option, and from a protocolized uh, viewpoint, it's unfractionated heparin, which is the most commonly used uh, heparin-related uh, molecule. One of the other uh, t- topics that I thought uh, you might want to talk about is really there in Figure 2, this concept of the iceberg phenomenon, because I find that often a bit of a challenge when trying to teach the residents about uh, that many patients will have the antibody, but many fewer will actually have the disease. Typically, in certain populations like cardiology, cardiac surgery, orthopedic surgery, and such, uh, there will be exposure uh, to heparin, and the antibody uh, may actually be produced. However, the the presence of the antibody, which can be overdiagnosed with the ELISA anyway, but the presence of the antibody doesn't necessarily mean that the platelets are going to be excited to the extent that the endothelium and, and the platelets will work together to actually form an arterial or venous thrombosis. So many patients will develop the antibody. Some patients will develop thrombocytopenia, and only a small proportion of those will actually develop heparin-induced thrombocytopenia with thrombosis. And so to understand the importance of that, you have to understand the pathophysiology. You have the presence of, of heparin uh, and, and its combination or complexing with platelet factor four which is an antigen found on the surface of platelets and sometimes in the bloodstream. And this complex, this immune complex, will trigger the production of heparin-dependent antibodies. And so, therefore, the complex of the heparin-dependent antibody, IgG, together with platelet factor IV and free forms of heparin, 
will actually result in the activation and excitation of platelets. And the excitability of the platelets then results in platelet aggregation and thrombosis. The next uh, topic that I wanted to focus in on, which I know, again, could be another day-long talk, is the diagnosis. And it seems like one of the most important take-home points, first, that we could make is for people to think about it. But that importantly, and I know in in this um, particular manuscript, you have it as Table 5, talking about estimating the pretest probability of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia in Dr. Warkington's uh, The Four Ts. And perhaps if you could combine that with a bit of a discussion, and that's integrated into this, with the different testing modalities, which I also know can get somewhat complicated in terms of the uh, testing for the antibody versus the functional assays. First of all, we should step back and take the broad view the diagnosis of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is largely a clinical diagnosis. So in other words, one makes the diagnosis based on a constellation of observations. Uh, that includes a platelet count that drops to uh, less than 50% of baseline and oftentimes an absolute count that's less than 100,000. Uh, the exception to that would be patients whose platelet count might start off at 350,000 and then drops down to 125,000. That still counts. Uh, even counts as high as 150,000 would still count if it represents a large drop from baseline. So you don't want to be faked out by the absence of actual thrombocytopenia. It's more the relative drop from baseline. And it's important that once you identify a significant uh, reduction in the count of platelets from baseline, uh, the practitioner asks, what are the possibilities? And if heparin exposure has occurred, then another way you help make the diagnosis is, is the temporal relationship. So the typical onset heparin-induced thrombocytopenia occurs on the order of, say, 5 to 15 days from exposure. If the platelet count is dropping within the first day or two after the initial administration of heparin, then it's generally unlikely that that patient is sustained um, uh, immune-related heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Unfortunately, there are exceptions, as there often are. So for patients who have had uh, previous heparin exposure within the, the last 30 to 90 days, then actually there is a phenomenon known as rapid onset hit, which really represents re-exposure to heparin. In that setting, the public count may drop dramatically within a matter of hours of the first day. And so you have to recognize when was the patient last exposed to heparin. So for patients who are bouncing in and out of the hospital on a regular basis, the practitioner is guided to actually just assume that they had heparin exposure when they were last in the hospital two, three, four weeks previously. So it's the, the relative drop in platelet count uh, together with the temporal relationship from the administration of heparin that should uh, raise the likelihood of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And then the practitioner would then send off for either an ELISA or a functional assay, say a serotonin release assay, or some other activation assay. Uh, and depending on what assay is used in the practitioner's hospital, the combination of those things should lead to the diagnosis of HIT. Now, the four T's is sort of a scoring system which has never been validated, but at least represents a first start. And if, and if one looks at Table 5 in the article, it really gives two points uh, for the presence of a major drop in, in platelet count, for the timing of the onset of the platelet decrease, in this case, from within days 5 to 10 of heparin exposure or within the first day after recent heparin exposure, the presence of a new thrombosis or skin necrosis at the site of uh, heparin administration, and when you answer the question, are there any other possible causes of thrombocytopenia, and if the answer is none evident. 
In that case, then the patient has a very high likelihood of having developed heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and, and treatment should be initiated or prophylaxis initiated if they haven't yet developed the thrombosis. The um, And the only uh, other point I wanted to make there from reading your article and others is that the ELISA assay is very good at ruling out HIT, but can often be very complicated. It can play a complicated role in the diagnosis for some of the reasons that you've mentioned before, including the iceberg phenomenon. Yeah, the, the assays are something that throw most people for a loop. The uh, serotonin release assay, a functional assay, has a sensitivity of more than 95%. One is performed by experienced laboratories, but in truth, for many hospitals, that's a secondary test. It's often a send-out. You may not get the result back for many days. So most hospitals rely on the much quicker and easier performed test, the ELISA. And the ELISA has a relatively high sensitivity of over 90%, and it has a pretty good negative predictive value of about 95%, but it also has a low specificity. And, and uh, therefore, the presence of a negative ELISA does not rule out the syndrome. So... In some, then, uh, the platelet factor 4 heparin ELISA suggests that it can be used to exclude HIT as a cause of thrombocytopenia in the critically ill patient. So oftentimes we end up getting both tests. And it's the combination of those tests and still the clinical presentation that leads to the treatment. Um, we're heading towards the uh, the final section of the interview, and, and we haven't really touched on the sequelae of this disease. And, and for that, I'm actually just going to read a section from your manuscript and let you make some comments, because I think most of the uh, listeners are, are probably somewhat aware. But uh, I'm on page 2902 under thrombotic sequelae. The available evidence from uh, one prospective and three retrospective studies indicates that the risk for venous and arterial thrombotic complications after stopping heparin therapy is greater than 20% and as high as 50% in patients with HIT. Venous thromboses are four times more common than arterial thromboses, and uh, it's usually uh, larger vessels rather than uh, small vessels, more like a vasculitic picture, if you'd like to talk about that. Well, I think one of the really key take-home messages about heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is that in the olden days, most of us thought that if you just stopped the offending agent, that is the heparin, the platelet count would recover and the patient would be, would be home free. And we've learned in the last, oh, decade or so from at least four studies now that that's entirely untrue. In other words, that even if you stop the heparin, even if the platelet count begins to recover, the platelets that were exposed to the heparin remained excitable for the next two to four weeks. So what Workington and others have shown is that the risk of subsequent thrombosis, even though you stop the heparin, 25% to, in one study, as high as 75%. So really, you're not out of the woods just because you stop the heparin and the platelet count is recovering because those platelets remain excitable for the next two to four weeks. And as a result, many of us now think that in the high-risk patient, even if they haven't sustained a thrombosis, even where we've made the diagnosis of HIT, we should actually initiate prophylaxis, a non-heparin anticoagulant to prophylax against this as high as 50 to 70% risk of subsequent thrombosis. One of the other uh, controversial areas, which uh, if you'd like to comment on, you can, but I've even spoken you know, with uh, various hematologists about this, and it gets confusing, is how long the patient needs to be anticoagulated for and with what, but I guess I'm sort of jumping the gun here a little bit. Treatment is typically with a non-heparin compound, and there aren't that many choices. Uh, Denaparoid was uh, available in the United States up until about 2001. I think it's still available in Europe and in Canada. And, and here in the United States and also worldwide, 
the direct thrombin inhibitors are now the mainstay of, of both treatment and prophylaxis in the setting of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Examples of those would be leporudin, argatraban, and bivalirudin, although bivalirudin has not been approved for use outside the cardiac catheterization lab. So really, in the intensive care unit, it's largely leporudin and argatraban. And these direct thrombin inhibitors are important because they act directly on the motor of thrombosis, that being thrombin. Uh, and, and by doing so, uh, they prevent thrombosis, and they bypass the indirect uh, thrombin approach uh, utilized by the heparin-like compounds. Uh, the direct thrombin inhibitors are continuous infusions. They're relatively expensive. One follows the PTT to achieve anticoagulation when employing them. As a general rule of thumb, their half-lives are not too very long, ranging uh, from approximately 40 minutes for argatraban to about 80 minutes for leporudin. The way I like to classify them is that leporudin is cleared by the kidney, so I don't like to use that, that agent in the setting of renal failure. Argatraban is cleared by the liver, so I don't like to use that agent uh, in patients with hepatic failure. And, and so based on, on the organ failures present, one can select the compound. These compounds, as I mentioned, are relatively expensive but highly effective. And basically, the idea is that one treats this disorder until a platelet count recovers. So that might be upwards of five to seven days. And then you continue anticoagulation with an oral anticoagulant, such as Coumadin, for anywhere as long as two to four weeks. I would say for a minimum of two weeks and probably as long as four weeks. The likelihood of risk begins to plateau off after about two weeks after the heparin has been stopped. But it isn't like uh, somebody with venous thromboembolic disease where it may be six months to a year or two indefinitely depending on the underlying risk factors, right? Right, and that's because, again, the physiology is different. This has to do with excitability of platelets, which apparently lasts approximately two weeks at a minimum. Well, this has actually been uh, uh, really, really great, and I think I'll just conclude by reading this Table 8 and then letting you make some final comments. Table 8 talks about the principles of treatment for suspected or confirmed heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, the six A's. So number one, avoid and discontinue all heparin. Number two, administer non-heparin alternative anticoagulant, just like you were discussing. Number three, uh, some sort of antiplatelet factor four heparin antibody test for confirmation. Uh, number four, avoid platelet transfusion. Number five, await platelet recovery before initiation of warfarin anticoagulation. And six, assess for uh, lower extremity uh, venous thromboembolic disease. I think that's correct, although I don't think we need to confine ourselves to the lower extremities, even though that's what we list in the, uh, the table. Right. Um, I would make a couple of points. One is, if you're thinking about heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and you're sending off for an assay to confirm the presence of heparin-dependent antibodies, continuing the heparin, like some practitioners might, is, is, is really actually malpractice. It's way outside the standard of care. If you're thinking about the presence of heparin-dependent antibodies, you actually need to stop the heparin exposure because to continue giving heparin in that setting uh, not only puts the patient at adverse risk, but it's actually hard to defend. And the second thing that I'd like to point out is that platelet transfusions are clearly associated with thrombosis in general, as demonstrated by uh, the Canadians in the study that was published in Critical Care Medicine in the summer of 2005, but then apart from that, in patients who have hit with significant and severe thrombocytopenia, giving platelets clearly puts the patient at added risk. And I would point to a, a, an online paper that was published in uh, this month's issue of Critical Care by Gettings et al. out of the Massachusetts General Hospital. 
in which they uh, studied for a period of two years patients in their surgical intensive care unit, of which 10% went on to develop uh, HIT, or at least have positive HIT assays performed. And the one point they wanted to make was that five of their patients who did have HIT were actually given platelet transfusions, and four of the five died. So giving platelet transfusions to patients with suspected or proven HIT is an extremely bad idea. We've been speaking today with Stanley A. Nazaroy, MD, FCCM. He is a professor of surgery, medicine, and anesthesia at Tufts University and director-in-chief of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Tufts New England Medical Center. And we've been talking about the very exciting, important ICU topic, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia in the critical care setting, diagnosis and management. As always, uh, Stanley, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Richard, thank you again, and I look forward to our next conversation. And also, I want to thank all the listeners for taking the time to take a listen to the broadcast. Happy holidays. See you soon. Bye now. This concludes our podcast for Thursday, December 21st, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Register now for the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress to be held in Orlando, Florida, USA, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Connect with your colleagues and gain a multi-professional perspective on clinical topics relevant to your daily ICU environment by attending the various cutting-edge sessions, hands-on workshops, informative symposia, and exciting social engagements. Don't miss the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Register today by speaking with an SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or by visiting www.sccm.org.